0: What's up, everybody? My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, really grateful to be here this beautiful Sunday morning. Um, Shout out to everybody who is registered for our newcomers gathering. Uh, One of the things that I think about as I kind of go back in time and think about what it meant to go into a church for the first time or for the first nine times, and you can connect with people on the stage, but you really don't connect with other people in the community just yet. Uh, I would strongly encourage everybody who has, A, registered for that to make sure you're there. Um, And I guess if you haven't registered and you've been coming to Renaissance the last couple of months to uh, see Gina in the hallway, I'm not sure if we're allowed to do this, but I gave you permission. If you're new, you started coming in the last couple of months, we would love to meet you. And we're going to have a newcomers gathering in the cafeteria right after service. So I don't want you to run to your plans. I want you to come into to to meet people. Now, as Renaissance has grown over the years, uh, our mission is not that everybody would know everybody that's not realistic or practical but our real mission is that everybody would know somebody as we are connecting people to jesus christ and to each other so newcomers gathering in the cafeteria after service that's my quick commercial break for that let me pray for us before we get into scripture today dear heavenly father lord it is a privilege to call you our father lord that implies care for us that implies concern for us Lord, you care about where we are, you have concerns about us, and your concerns for us don't stop at thoughts, Lord, they move you to action in our lives. So I pray right now, Lord, that your spirit would move us right now, would meet us exactly where we are, would compel us to come closer to you. In Jesus' let me pray, amen and amen. Uh, if you were to read through the Bible, uh, one thing that is both a comfort and a challenge is that God is no respecter of persons. That's how the King James Bible says it, at least, but all throughout the Bible, you'll see this one scripture that God does not show favoritism. Now, the way that I think about life and the way that I characterize and categorize the people in my life, I tend to show a lot of partiality or favoritism based on how much I can relate to someone else. But over and over again in the Bible, it says that God does not show favoritism. There's one story in the book of 1 Samuel, and it's about the calling of a king, like the king named David. And David's father had a bunch of sons, and David was the youngest of all of his sons. And as this prophet named Samuel was coming to investigate which one of these young men would become the king, surely he thought to himself it would be this tall, diesel, um, well-dressed son of Jesse. This dude named Eliab, anybody who's pregnant looking for some names, Eliab, that's a a good name. (laughs) But in 1 Samuel 16 and 7, here's what the scripture says. But the Lord said to Samuel, this prophet, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees for humans see what is visible. We see how someone is dressed. We see their ethnicity, we see their height, we see their fitness, we see all these things. We see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Now, right off the gate, when I read scriptures like this and when I see scriptures all throughout the Bible, which says that God does not show favoritism or God does not show partiality, it's convicting because in so many different ways, um, I, I see how in my own life, Um, I'm not consistent with God, and how could I be? Because I don't see the hearts of people like God does. So it makes sense that if God does not show favoritism, and if God does not judge people based on appearance, then those who follow God, those who would call themselves Christians, should do the same. Now, this is what the book of James is all about. The book of James is all about people who claim to have faith in Jesus, actually living like they have faith in Jesus. Jesus. James is not a high and lofty theological treatise. James is deeply concerned with Christians developing a deep humility in which they would engage the world around them. So James, in this passage of scripture, knowing what he knows about God, knowing what he knows about Jesus, pens these words to this first group of Christians. And here's what James says to them, and he says it by extension to us. My brothers and sisters, Do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed. If you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, to love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, James is very blunt. He says, if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. So James, from the beginning of his letter through the end, James is throwing haymakers at people. And in his first one, he says this, and it's a line that sticks out to me. He says, as you hold on to faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So, what James is basically saying is there are incompatible value systems. That if you show favor, that favoritism and holding on to faith in Jesus are incompatible value systems. And you can't hold on to both of them together. The, the way my brain works, I have a very random brain. And I don't know why I think about the random things that I think about. But a couple of weeks ago, I was literally thinking about um, Osama bin Laden. And how he loved Whitney Houston. I just like couldn't comprehend how, like, what the what the Steel Team was thinking when they busted in the compound and like saw the entire DVD collection of Whitney Houston, her concerts and mad CDs. Like, what were they thinking when the people, like the CSI experts, were trying to decode all of the secrets of the Osama, of Osama bin Laden, and it was just nothing but like the complete discography of Whitney how do you sing Death to America in the morning and I want to dance with somebody at night? (laughs) Now, these are deeply incompatible value systems. It doesn't make sense. And what James is basically saying is, if you hold on to favoritism, it is as incomprehensible and as absurd if you want to also hold on to faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, because these two systems are completely opposite. Jesus didn't get down like that. I've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, Mark tells an amazing story about a man named Jairus. And Jairus was a man of a lot of reputation. He had power. Uh, Jairus was somebody that if he walked into this room, he would command respect. Jesus is interacting with a man named Jairus, and Jairus' daughter is sick, and everybody is concerned about Jairus' daughter. Jairus got the whole squad behind him, clearing the way so that he can get to Jesus. He finally gets to Jesus. Jesus agrees to go with him to his house. Jairus had to be thinking to himself, yes, this one named Jesus who had been healing people is the ticket to my daughter's healing. Now, as a parent, I can think about the urgency that I would feel if one of my kids were dying. And the person who can do something about it was with me. And then while they were walking, someone touched Jesus. And Scripture recounts that it is a woman with an issue of blood. Now, in modern-day sensibilities, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us now. But to them, that statement would have meant everything. Because pursuant to the Jewish law, if a woman was menstruating, she could not be in town with everybody else. She had to go out until she stopped bleeding, and then she can come back in. And she definitely could not come and touch a religious leader. So this woman with the issue of blood comes and she touches Jesus, and Jesus does the unthinkable. He stops, and he turns around. He puts Jairus on ice, and he turns around, and Scripture says in Mark that when Jesus is talking to this woman, she was healed. So she already got what she came for. And then Scripture says Jesus heard her entire story. So Jairus is there. His daughter is dying. He's watching a woman who had no place being near Jesus, who's already gotten what she's needed, and now Jesus is listening to her tell her entire story. Jesus, over and over again throughout Scripture, privileges the people that we don't think deserve being privileged. Now, when James is writing these letters to us in his letter, when James is writing this to this group of Christians, basically what he is saying is, you know who Jesus is. You know how he gets down. And you know he doesn't get down like that. You know he doesn't show favoritism. And as you are attempting, as you are deciding to hold on to faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you can't hold on to favoritism at the same time. So James continues in this letter, and um, uh, how um, the objection that James really gives us is in verse 4, when he says, man, here's, here's the real sin, that you have made distinctions among yourselves. You have made it up on your own, that you have decided that you can be an authority figure and you can make distinctions and you can make classes. Now, some of us in this room certainly could be guilty of what James says expressly in this text, that we show favoritism to those people who have the things in life that we wish we had. So in our modern-day celebrity culture, and certainly, uh, with affluence, if you have money, the rich get richer in America. This is kind of the way capitalism works. That if you have uh, a certain credit card and certain type of thing, you get access to places that other people don't get access to, and you get treated better in general. But the Bible is not a capitalistic structure. The, every, everybody is level at the foot of the cross. So we may, not be, we may or may not be guilty of what James is saying expressly Um, here in this letter, but I I do want to put a couple more categories in here for all of our consideration because you holding favoritism or Jordan holding favoritism is incompatible with the value system of what it means to follow and to hold on to faith in Jesus. So for some of us, it's not necessarily money. It's just appearance. Um, You know, good-looking people get treated better. I I read a study that uh, my late wife, she was a math teacher, and she did a training. And uh, in the training, they talked about how Good-looking students, not like for any sexual reasons, but just good-looking students got preferential treatment over students that teachers didn't find to be good-looking. So a seventh grader who raises his hand and may not be as visually appealing to his teacher as another one wouldn't get the same treatment. And I think there's something hard baked into our our souls. We like looking at good-looking people. But in the training, she had to unlearn giving preferential treatment to people who are just appealing to the eyes. So I think it's something that all of us would, have, would do well to consider. Um, another one is age. Uh, we judge people based on their age. And this goes in both directions. Um, uh, we, we judge their, their know howness in, in, in a variety of different ways. And we want to be around people who are in our same bracket. Now, Lester, and I, Pastor Lester and I, he's a community life pastor among many other roles in, at, at Renaissance. We're trying to figure out what community life looks like in the fall for us. Um, now that I don't know where we're at in terms of COVID, what that looks like, Uh, different comfort levels of people who want to be in person uh, versus who wants to be online, and we're trying to figure out all these different things. But one of the things that was really complex about life before COVID was that we would assign people to community groups, and then they would get in a community group, and they would immediately only want to be in in the group with people their age. Like, there are people, they were willing... To have different, you know, you're an artist, you're an architect. They were willing to do a lot of different things, but people, they would complain. And I think it's showing favoritism based on just where you're at in life. Now, there's something to be said about commonality and about having things in common, um, but I think all of us would do very well to consider how much favoritism we're showing or not showing based on our age as well. The other one's achievement. Uh, people who have achieved a lot particularly in the field that we aspire to, we just look up to them and we would treat them better and affluence, as James talks about. But probably the biggest area that you need to be worried about is something that psychologists call in-group favoritism. Now, in-group favoritism is that you and I have an in-group and an out-group. That you automatically separate the world into two big categories, us and them. And every single time you walk into a room, you are looking for who is us and who is them. Now, there's a whole lot of different ways that that could boil down in your life, but you have to be careful that you are not falling prey to in-group favoritism and in-group bias. One of the best stories I heard about this is, uh, comes from a book called Blind Spot, uh, a woman named Mazaran Banaji, and she tells a story about two Yale doctors And it's one of the best examples I've heard about how people relate to each other. And not just how we relate to each other, but how we limit who we are willing to help out. It's a story about a woman named Carla Kaplan. And Carla Kaplan was a professor of American literature at the University of Yale. Uh, Yale University. I didn't go to Ivy League. So, one of these two. (laughs) Now, she was a dedicated quilter, and she was um, loved to quilt. But one evening, while she was washing a crystal bowl in her kitchen in the sink, it accidentally slipped from her hands. She tried to catch the bowl, but to no avail. The bowl hit the sink, broke, and slashed her across her hand and her wrist. Blood splattered all over the floor, and Carla's boyfriend threw some towels around her hand and raced her to the hospital. Soon as she got to the hospital, um, it was Yale University Hospital, uh, Carla's boyfriend was talking to the, to the doctor saying um, how much she loved to quilt, and that he really wanted to make sure that whatever was done to repair her hand was done to the utmost excellence so that she would have full capacity of her hand to continue to quilt. The doctor said, don't worry about it, everything will be fine if we just stitch it up quickly. As the doctor prepared Carla's hand for stitches, a student volunteer who had been working nearby recognized Carla and, and shouted out, oh, Professor Kaplan, what are you doing here? Now, that one sentence stemmed up, uh, stopped the doctor in his tracks. The doctor stopped and said, Professor, you're a professor at Yale, she, he asked. Now, within seconds, this doctor did a complete 180, and Carla was on a gurney being escorted to the hospital's surgery department. The best hand surgeon in all of Connecticut was rushed in, and a team of four worked on Carla's hand for hours to put it back to perfection. Here's the thing. After the doctor found out that Carla was a professor at Yale, suddenly he inconvenienced himself. Now, it wasn't because he hated her as he looked across from her uh, in the room. It was that he had an in-group bias, that when he could see in her another doctor at Yale, he was willing to inconvenience himself in ways that he was not previously. Now, I think the lesson is very clear for us. Once we see someone else as our neighbor, once we can identify with someone, we would be more willing to go out of our way and to lay down um, even our comforts for them. Now, here's what the cross does. The cross takes away this I'm better than you distinction. At the foot of the cross, the ground is all level. Everybody, as James would say it, is completely and entirely dependent on the saving work of Jesus Christ. And your little additions that you think that you are adding to it don't really meet, amount to anything. I heard one theologian say it like this, that you and, the only thing that you and I have added to our salvation is was the sin that made it necessary. And we have so many distinctions, and we have so much in-group bias and in-group favoritism that James is trying to create a new community of people that just operates differently than the way the world works. And this is not, this is because what it means to become a follower of Jesus is not to adopt a list of doctrines that you believe. That I agree to these, oh yeah, I agree that Jesus was born, he was crucified, he was resurrected. I'm a Christian. To grow as a Christian means that you have, you are leaving your family of origin. You are leaving your culture and you are learning what it means to be in the family of God. And what it, one thing that it means to be in the family of God, James is telling us, is that we would lay down our in-group bias and our in-group distinctions and that we would be a beautiful community that doesn't treat people the way that the world treats people. Now, A lot of times people think about this, this word evangelism, and if you ride the subway, um, I'm sure you've seen people yelling at people on the street. Uh, they hold up signs, and they, um, and this is not to say that's wrong, uh, because there have been people who have found Jesus that way. That's not my preferred method of evangelism. I think the best method of evangelism is what the scripture writers say in Colossians and 1 Timothy That you would live in such a way that people would ask you, what is it about you? That the Christian community would be so compelling that people would look at us and say, wow, the way you are living is beautiful. What is it that gives you that fuel to live like that? And one of those things, I think, is to live counterculturally, that we would not show favoritism. Because God does not want us showing preferential treatment based on our human conditions and categories. So a couple of things about favoritism and four reasons why you should not show favoritism. Number one, favoritism redefines greatness. Favoritism redefines greatness. Favoritism tells us other people are great based on a certain criteria that we have created in our minds. And it makes some people appear greater than normal. And um, some people are definitely, certainly uniquely gifted in areas Um, But all of us are image bearers of the divine. Now, here's something that's so fascinating. When Jesus talked about greatness, here's what Jesus said. The greatest among you, the greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself or herself will be exalted. Favoritism redefines greatness, not based on Jesus' criteria, but based on our criteria. The person who's killing it in our profession, the person who looks the best, the person who's the most astute in one thing or another. But Jesus says, the greatest among you will be the servant. You know who the greatest among us in this room today is? Not me because I'm standing on stage with a microphone attached to my ear. It's the people who got here at 7 o'clock to do setup. Jesus says, these are the greatest people among you. I'll go in the hallway, and people will shake my hand, say, Pastor, that was an amazing word, and I do need some affirmation, so please tell me that. (laughs) But we don't, there are so many positions. We had our volunteer appreciation, uh, our crew leader, uh, crew leader appreciation night the other day, and a couple weeks ago, and we were talking to some of the crew leaders, amazing men and women who serve this community so uh, selflessly, and one of the words that somebody described them with was, oh, you do a really thankless job, and we were thanking them for doing the thankless jobs, and then I thought about it like, well, that shouldn't be thankless. Like, it actually shouldn't be thankless that you get up at 7 o'clock in the morning, you organize a team to come and to set up the church so that people can worship. Like, we shouldn't just come in and just assume that that's going to be done for us and just walk out like nothing was done. Like, that shouldn't be a thankless position. And Jesus redefines greatness, and this, this is something I'm trying to learn in my own life. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we talked about James 1 and 1, about James a servant, and I've been trying to nurture servanthood in my life, not visible ways, but invisible ways that I would become great according to God's definition, not human definitions. So favoritism really just redefines greatness, and it doesn't define it in a good way. Uh, Number two, favoritism devalues us. Now ironically, at the same time that it redefines greatness, it devalues us at the same time. Favoritism also tells us that we are less than great because we fall short of the same criteria that we have defined for other people. Those people that we view as great, um, we wouldn't see ourselves as as great as them based on our flawed perspective. And um, because we don't have what they have or do what they do, we feel less valuable. You know, when I first um, got into ministry... um, I remember going to uh, my church in Baltimore and there's a prophetic church where they would speak over you prophetically. And when I would hear people prophesy or pray over someone that they were going to be great, I would get a little jealous. In my brain, I thought greatness meant visibility. I thought greatness meant a crowd. I thought greatness meant a lot of attention, selling a bunch of books. And over the years, I've realized that those who are truly great, those who leave an impact, those who have a generationally defining ministry oftentimes are people that you would have never heard about. When I think about the people in my life, the ministry people in my life who have been great, I'm not thinking about anybody that you know that you've seen their sermons on YouTube. They don't have any channels for you to subscribe to. One of those brothers, I've talked about him often and I'll continue to talk about him because he meant so much to me, is uh, a man named Brother Al. And I met Brother Al when I was at a really critical point in life. I was uh, just hearing about this term called church planting, and I was coming out of a church movement where, again, greatness meant visibility. And I was starting to see my aspirations line up with the culture more than what Scripture was telling me. But I met Brother Al, and he was a volunteer at Sing Sing Prison. And uh, When I went in to do a chaplaincy residency there, I met him, and within minutes, I was just blown away by his character. I was blown away by his consistency. Now, for 20 years straight, Brother Al taught a Bible study in prison on Thursday nights to the brothers there, and he would miss one week a year, and that week would be Thanksgiving because they wouldn't let him in on the prison on Thanksgiving Day. Brother Al uh, later passed away from cancer, and I remember when he was sick, uh, he would schedule his chemo treatments around Thursday so that he would be able to go into the prison. At his funeral, there was garbage bags and garbage bags and garbage bags full of letters that men wrote him who spent years, decades with him, and the impact that he had on their life. Not just from teaching them scripture, but that their life as a father now changed, he made them go apologize to their, to, his kid, to their kids. He was helping them restore relationships. That brother was great, not because he had a platform, not because people knew about him, but because he was a servant. When I changed my mentality from visibility to service and to servanthood, that is something that I can aspire to. That's something that you can aspire to. We can all serve. We can all be sacrificial, we can all be selfless, but we cannot allow ourselves to have a different definition of what it means to be great, because if we do that, it will devalue us. So favoritism devalues us, and favoritism also dethrones God. I needed another word that started with D because I love alliteration, so it devalues us and it dethrones God. Here's one of the most fascinating concepts. The most important person in the room is always determined by the most powerful person in the room. The most important person in this room right now is determined by the most powerful person in the room right now. It doesn't really matter what I think about someone, if someone more powerful than me thinks someone else gets, um, deserves special treatment. Um, in my family right now, uh, my four-year-old, we baby him. We do. I'm not going to lie about that. We definitely baby him. And if he were to be walking around here right now, and I would have sensed that he were in danger, I would leave the stage and go. All of you are great. I love y'all, I want to serve y'all. But he's the most, he's way more important than y'all. Whether or not, whether or not you think he's important, you could walk right past him and not have any idea who he is. But because he's my son, and because he's at a, you know, he's a four-year-old, I would immediately give him preferential treatment of you. And here's the thing. I get to determine to do that because I got the mic in my hand. The most important person is always determined by the most powerful person in the room. And what favoritism does is it dethrones God. It says, now nah, God, I know you think these people are important, but I don't think they're important. I think these people are important. And in doing so, we are assuming a godlike like character that we do not possess. So we need to be very careful about that. And the biggest reason why favoritism is so deadly is favoritism forgets the gospel. Here's what James says in verse 4. He says, Haven't you made distinctions? And there are no distinctions in the kingdom of heaven. Paul says it like this in Galatians 3:27 through 29. He says, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, and you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now, what Paul says in this last line is phenomenally important, and I don't want you to miss this. He says, You are heirs according to the promise. That biblical Christianity is not about what you have earned, but it's about what has been earned for you. If you are an heir, that means you are the recipient of an estate that someone else has worked hard to gain. And what Paul is basically saying here is in all of these categories that people have made and that these these deeply entrenched, entrenched categories that exist in our society, none of them matter. Paul is saying, you are all one in Christ. And to show favoritism of one group over another, it forgets the gospel. And it makes it that you and I have earned something on our own, not what has been earned for us. So, the beauty of the gospel is that it is two sided. On one side, it is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, but it's also an indictment of who we are without him. Listen to what Paul also says in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. And here's what he says and here's the reason why Christians should be the last people on earth to show favoritism. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working, in the disobedient. Now, that first um, description that Paul uses is that you were, you were dead. Now, the Bible is really uh, profoundly intentional in the way that it describes things. If, we, if our condition was described as like a sickness, then there are things you can do to make your, your illnesses better. You can change your diet. You can get more sleep. You can go to the doctor's office, you can take the medicine, and a lot is dependent on you, like your health, certainly not in all cases, but in many cases, your health can be improved based on the decisions that you make. The Bible doesn't say you were sick in sin. The Bible says you were dead in sin, And the only remedy for a dead person is a resurrection. And a resurrection doesn't happen because of you because you're dead, you're just laying there. So this is what Paul says, and it's. A statement, why Christians should be the last people to ever be to show favoritism. Because you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He continues, um, we too all lived previously among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And here's what Paul says. We were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God. But God, who was rich in mercy... Because of his great love that he had for us, he made us alive. He didn't allow you to be alive. He made you alive with Christ, even though you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You are saved by grace. The ground is always level at the cross. Nothing for us to boast on. Nothing for us to to poke our chests out other than the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so... If we are to be a people that resembles God and does not show favoritism, we need to remember God's grace. We need to bathe ourselves in the gospel, reminding ourselves that God in his infinite grace took on flesh, came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died an atoning death in our place to defeat sin on our behalf. And because of God's grace manifested through his son, Jesus Christ, you and I are now favored by God, not because of anything that you have done. Now, here's the beautiful thing about what it would look like for you to remember grace. If you were to truly internalize what it means to be a recipient of grace, it would be really easy for you to be a gracious person that doesn't show favoritism. You wouldn't look down on anybody because you would know deep within your heart, deep within your soul, the Holy Spirit would be baking this truth into your heart that you are a recipient of grace and you would want to show that same grace to everybody else. Uh, Growing up is when I first developed my my love for sneakers. And if it's an expensive habit now, it was an even more expensive habit back then uh, for for my dad. Not because he was buying me a lot of sneakers, he definitely didn't do that, but because my dad would buy sneakers for the entire neighborhood. My dad grew up in the 50s in a tenement living in Buffalo and he tells stories about when he was uh, in middle school, and he only had like two pairs of pants and two shirts, and um, his mother grew up a sharecropper in Ripley, Tennessee, and when she moved to Buffalo, just cleaned up rich people's homes on her hands and knees. She didn't have enough to even put food on the table many days, but she was proud. My dad would get teased for being poor, He never had nice shoes. When my dad, growing up, would see kids in the neighborhood who didn't have a lot, he didn't pity them. He wasn't trying to prove how good of a man he was. He saw himself. He saw himself in them. And it was easy. It was easy to to want to bless them Because he saw himself. He saw and remembered that once upon a time, he had nothing. And now, by God's grace, he had something. And he was going to share that something with everybody he came into contact with. I think we have a really deficient understanding of grace. That grace is something that God gives us to make us a little bit nicer versions of ourselves. And grace should make you a nicer, non-jerk of a type of person. That's not the purpose of grace. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, and God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive. And to the extent and to the degree that we can see the two-sided nature of the gospel, that it is only Christ and Christ alone that makes us anything, that makes us alive in God, that will be the favoritism Killing thing in our lives, and I know other no other way. Let me pray for us. So, God, our Father, uh, Lord, I'm so grateful for this this challenge and the scripture in James, that we would be a, a beautiful community shaped by your word and shaped by your scripture, shaped by your Holy Spirit, leading us to countercultural ways of love, and to show the world a new way, not a way. Strictly defined by a bunch of rules and what-to-dos and what-not-to-dos. But, Lord, a more beautiful alternative than the way that we treat people. A beautiful way to love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, I pray for a a deep awareness of our own need. Lord, on Tuesday, I pray for a sharp reminder of the gospel that would pierce us and that would allow us to, to be humble, to be really humble. And I pray that that humility, Lord, would permeate our relationships and our interactions. I ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.